Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Today, we're obviously not continuing in our series since it's Easter. I have the easy task of knowing what we'll be speaking about specifically uh, the harder task is particularly which text. But we're going to be looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I thought since we were both because we've been, we're reading Paul's final letter uh, to Timothy is what we're studying right now. But also there was a heresy that was there in Ephesus that Paul was writing Timothy to deal with. And that a, a very similar heresy was also involved in Corinth, and Paul's dealing with it here in 1 Corinthians 15. So we're going to kind of look at that and talk about the good news of the resurrection as always. The text will be up on the screen. It's there in your booklet as well. And I encourage you as always to uh, bring a Bible or grab one off of your phone and follow along. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of the risen living Savior. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Brothers and sisters, that is the word of God. I am uh, right now reading a book that is entitled Breaking Bread with the Dead. An unusual title. Uh, It actually comes out of a a W.H. Auden poem. And the entire book, somewhat like what the poem is encouraging, is an encouragement for us to spend time reading really, really old books, reading authors who have long since died because of the value that even though it appears they lived in times that are very different than our own, there's actually a lot of commonality. And sometimes they can speak more clearly to us because we don't have baggage with them like we do people who are living around us today. And as I'm reading that book, it's reminding me, you know, the old saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And if you think back and look at the, the first century, our initial impression compared to the early believers is that we live in a completely different world. But actually, we don't. People really have the same 
problems. We've got the same needs. We keep facing the same errors over and over and over again. If you are a student of history, you can't help but read when some idea crops up today and it takes center stage and it becomes all the rage and you're like, I've seen and heard this before and this never ends well. This is not going to go anywhere good, but we keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And in the ancient world, Corinth faced a particular heresy, uh, an early form of what was known as Gnosticism, and so did they in Ephesus, and actually it's had a real revival in our own day. Gnosticism tends to downplay the importance of the body, and it tends to upplay you know, anything that is immaterial as that that is what is really important. And so today we want to take time, and we're going to go through and look at how Paul is addressing this in 1 Corinthians 15, and how he brings it back, and as with everything else in the Scripture, he says what you need to do is go back to the Gospel. Because if you think through the Gospel, you're going to see it answering the questions that are being raised. So let's dive in. Now the first thing is to understand the good news and its importance. And that is, I remind us that the word gospel is actually in Greek the word good news. It's just, it's euangelion. E-U is a word that means good in Greek. We use it sometimes in our words in English. And angelion just means news or a proclamation. And so when Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, he says, I want to remind you of the gospel. Uh, and he says, by this gospel you are saved. It's literally, I want to remind you of the good news. And by this good news you are saved. And so we sometimes forget because we, you know, we get... We've got gospel music and gospel this and gospel that, and we can forget what the word gospel actually means. But I want to remind us this morning, this message that we talk about, this message that we've been singing about is really good news. It's in fact the best of all possible news. We are surrounded by all kinds of bad news. I mean, most of the time when I take my iPhone, just like you and you and I, swipe all the way over to the side, and I start reading the news, it's not usually good stuff. It's usually just disaster after disaster. We live in a world of bad news, a world of fake news. We're here today celebrating good news that is actually true news. And so Paul goes on and he says that the gospel is not only good news, it is the most important news in the world. Notice there in verses 1 to 3, he tells us several things that point out how important the gospel is. He says, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. He's reminding them. He's told them this again and again. One might say, well, gee, Paul, you were there. You stayed in Corinth a long time. You preached the gospel. Don't you have something new? To which Paul's answer is no. I have the gospel, and I want to remind you of the gospel. I don't mind reminding you of the gospel, because when you have something that is the most important message, you don't take it for granted. You go back to it over and over again. And notice Paul there specifically says that it is of first importance. It is what is most important. I, I got the gospel, Paul says, and I gave it to you, and I gave it to you, not just in general. I told you it was the most important thing. This was of 
prime importance. Uh, he also tells the Corinthians that, look, this is what you received, and it is where you took your stand. It's a picture. He said your, your, your feet are firmly planted in this. It's where you are rooted. It is how you live your life. And the reason that all of this is true, the reason it's so important, the reason that it's so critical, uh, the reason that it has to be handed on is because Paul says, by this gospel you are saved. This gospel is the message of salvation. And in fact, he goes on, he says, look, if you lose this, if you forget this, it doesn't matter what else you do. It doesn't matter how good you look on Easter morning. It doesn't matter what uh, church your name is on, the role of it. It doesn't matter what other things you do. If you have lost the gospel, you have in fact lost everything. There is nothing more important than the gospel. And so for us this morning, again, the more things change, the more they can kind of stay the same. There were all kinds of things that called themselves good news back in the first century. And today, we live in a world of ephemeral, silly news. Things that seem to be so important today, and nobody's even going to remember a few months from now until they put it on some nostalgia show, right? And then it'll come back and say, oh, I remember when we thought that was important. Well, in that world, the gospel comes in. It is unchanging, and it deals with the most important questions and issues in life. And by that gospel, we are saved. Now, Paul doesn't leave it up to us to say, you know, and I love that he does this, even though these are with people he's preached, we've been seeing, you know, even with Timothy, who's been his companion and co-worker for all these years, we've seen that Paul keeps going back and telling Timothy the gospel, as if he would know, because this is the way Paul is. And so he reminds the Corinthians of the content of the gospel. And he says the gospel, if you really boil it down, has three major parts. The first thing is, Paul says, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. On Good Friday, we were in here, many of us, and worshiping together, and we were, I don't know if celebrating is the right word, we were, we were more mourning as we thought through what our sins had caused, the very death of the Son of God. And the point is that Jesus didn't appear to die. He didn't kind of die. He literally, physically died. And he did that not just in some tragic thing. See, lots of people die. And, you know, it can be a sad thing. We're watching the news out of Ukraine right now, right? I mean, it's tragic to watch day after day. But see, there is a difference in that when I die, I'm just going to die because I've either reached the end of my days or I got a sickness or some accident happened. Jesus died specifically for a reason. And Paul tells us the reason is he died for our sins. And he did this according to the Scriptures. It wasn't some mistake that they tried to make feel or sound better later on. This had all been prophesied ahead of time. In Isaiah chapter 53, which is one of the great encapsulations of the gospel uh, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, uh, Isaiah is writing what's known as a servant song. There are four separate servant songs 
and the book of Isaiah, and they are all picturing the servant of the Lord who is going to come. But the astounding thing in Isaiah 53 is we're being told the servant is going to suffer. And notice what we're told in verses 4 to 6. Surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. For we all, like sheep, have gone astray and the, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice how Isaiah here keeps going over the same thing, that Jesus, the suffering servant, died, but he died not for his sins, but for our sins. In fact, he uses strong language. He was stricken. He was smitten. He was afflicted. And all of this, we are told, is not done. Notice it doesn't say by the Romans. It doesn't say by the Jewish high priest or their leaders. It says it was done by God. That the father was afflicting the son. And why did he do that? Because Jesus was taking our sin. The penalty that you and I were due is placed upon Jesus Christ and he bears it all. We were due punishment. It was laid on Jesus. And we need not question, there are some who, you know, well, we're not really sure that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. Yes, we are, because the author of Isaiah 53 is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit tells us in the New Testament it's about Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, speaking of Jesus, says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Here what he's saying is Isaiah 53 is about the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus bearing our sins so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. In fact, the whole New Testament summarizes this right at the very beginning. If you remember when Jesus began his public ministry, uh, John the Baptist was there and we read in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day uh, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now you and I might sit there and say, I wonder what that means. Nobody listening to John the Baptist had a question what that meant. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What were lambs used for? sacrifice in the temple. Everybody understood what it was about. I put my sin upon the lamb and the lamb suffered and the lamb died to bear the penalty for my sin. They did it day after day after day. In fact, they had been doing it for 1,400 years by this point. So it was deep in the conscience of the people to understand that. And John says, I want you to understand this is the lamb of God. Every other lamb was only a pointer to this lamb. You can read the book of Hebrews. That's really one of the central messages in the entire book of Hebrews is how Jesus has fulfilled the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. And so Paul says all that that was pointing towards, all that the scripture spoke of, Jesus died to fulfill that. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. Secondly, Christ was buried. 
Notice he says there in verse 4 that he was buried. Now, it's pretty interesting because this is not a topic we think about a whole lot, is it? There's really very little. Late this week, I was reading uh, a pretty interesting thing where a guy had taken all the gospel passages and put them together to show what was happening each day during Holy Week. And I happened to be late in, in Matthew. I was reading the, the Greek uh, of Matthew, and I happened to be at the crucifixion narrative and everything, so I was just reading it. I read about the crucifixion on Friday morning, and then yesterday's is very short because there's not a whole lot about it other than he's put in the tomb, they have the soldiers come and guard it, and he's there. But what's interesting is that his burial in an identifiable tomb is recorded in all of the Gospels. That none of them just go straight from cross to resurrect. They all note that he was buried. And in fact, they note that he was uh, buried in a particular tomb, in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a rich man's tomb, and that there were people watching. Now, they're doing this because they probably, the Holy Spirit probably realized there were going to be some ridiculous German scholars come up 1,800 years later and think they had figured stuff out that nobody else had ever seen before, right? And start coming up with ideas like, he didn't really die, which is pretty silly if you've actually studied history. Roman soldiers were very, very good at crucifying people because unfortunately, it was not a rare occurrence. They did it quite often. And so it tells us he's put in a tomb, and it tells us he's put in a specific tomb, and actually they know from the area where he's buried the difference between, you know, where it says a rich man's tomb, it specifies that Joseph of Arimathea is a rich man and he's buried in a rich man's tomb. This is important because it means there's no mistaking it. They stick out like sore thumbs. They're much larger. They're much bigger. So it's kind of, we were, we were chatting in Connect Group the other night. It's kind of like if you go into a cemetery and it's all two foot high headstones and then there's one of the massive mausoleums and saying the women got confused as to which one it was. Seriously? Have you thought through this very much? Because that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so Paul says it's essential to understand he not only died, he was buried. Because any theory that says he did not die or that his body was left on the cross or that it was put in the garbage dump outside the city or they went to the wrong tomb, let me be blunt, it's intellectual suicide. It's turning your brain off. It's saying, I don't want to deal with the actual historical evidence we have, and so I'll just come up with something silly that makes no sense whatsoever, rather than trying to deal with what we actually know, which is that he was buried. And interestingly enough, this was actually in the Scriptures too. Paul doesn't say here according to the Scriptures, but Isaiah chapter 53 tells us this. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor any deceit was in his mouth. So notice here he's assigned a grave with the rich. What the New Testament points out is Joseph of Arimathea, who's a rich man who had a brand new tomb, who he brings him in, and he does this. And so Christ died and was buried according to the Scriptures. And then thankfully, the story does not end there. Paul says the third part of the gospel is that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. And this is essential because notice what Paul is doing. Jesus did not die spiritually. 
He died physically. His body died. It was not his spirit that was buried in a tomb. It was his body that was buried in the tomb. And what was raised on the third day? His body. Again, it takes an extreme form of silliness to think that Paul has suddenly shifted. And what we're talking about now is a spiritual resurrection. The raising is no more spiritual than it was a spiritual death or a spiritual burial. The body that had lived is the body that died, is the body that was buried, is the body that was raised. And if we were going to continue on in the spirit of the coming days in the church calendar, I would point out it's the body that appeared for 40 days. It's the body that ascended to the right hand of the Father. It is the body in which he now rules and reigns over all creation as the second Adam. That body is the body that was raised on Easter Sunday. And it's not just a small point here. It is uh, essential to the entire text in 1 Corinthians 15. Because that's exactly what the heretics were saying. They were saying, well, it wasn't, he wasn't literally raised because the entire point is getting out of our body. We don't want to be in our body because the Gnostics believed that our body was our problem, that our body was evil. And so Paul writes the longest chapter on resurrection in the entire scripture to say no. Look, he goes on later and he says, it's like a seed. You take a seed, you plant it in the ground, and what grows, grows out of that seed. Yes, it's transformed. Yes, it's changed. But it's not a different seed. It is the seed that grows into what is there. What is sown is what grows. And he says it's exactly that way with the body. The body that is sown is perishable. That body is raised imperishable. It's the point of the whole chapter. And this bodily resurrection on the third day is according to the Scriptures, Paul told us. So this is not something new that came up that people shouldn't have known. The Old Testament had references regarding resurrection and specifically the resurrection of the Messiah. In Psalm chapter 16, verses 9 to 11, David is writing, and he writes, Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. And my body will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now David here is speaking of resurrection, that I'm going to have eternal pleasures. You will not leave me in the grave. But notice he also specifically says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Peter, in preaching about this, on Pentecost says, uh, has anybody noticed we all visit David's tomb? And guess what's in David's tomb? His bones, because his body decayed. And so Peter tells him, David clearly wasn't talking about himself. This words were not about himself. He was looking forward to the resurrection of the Messiah, which also meant, of course, that the Messiah had first died. And he says he speaks of the resurrection of the Messiah, that the Messiah's body would not 
seed decay. And so this text, Psalm 16, is, is the major text in Acts chapter 2 where we see the first uh, sermon after Pentecost. And then it's in Acts chapter 13. It's Paul's main text in the first sermon we have of the Apostle Paul after he went out on his missionary journey. So both times they focus back on Acts chapter 16. And this is because the literal physical death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the gospel. If you remove any of those components, you do not have the gospel. Not to get too current, but you have fake news. That's what you have. If you remove any of those, it's fake news. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 15, if that is true, you are still in your sins. Your faith is futile. If that's true, let's eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die and that's it. But he says, but thanks be to God, that is not true. Jesus did literally, physically, bodily die, get buried, and he was literally, physically, bodily raised from the dead. And Paul goes on and says, not only do we, we don't accept this by faith in the sense of the way we want to use it. You know, faith is a blind leap in the dark. Well, you have what you believe and I have what I believe. That's not what Paul makes the appeal to. Paul says, look, there's all kinds of witnesses. So he goes on and he says in verses 5 to 8, notice he lists many eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus first appeared to Peter, we're told, in the 12. And I love, you've got to love if you read through the Gospels and the account of the betrayal and death of Jesus. I love that it keeps specifying that he went back to Peter. Why is that good news for you and me? Because how many of us tell Jesus on a day like today, I mean, we feel pretty good, right? I feel like I could take on all the demons of hell today, you know? We sang a lot of stuff this morning. Oh, Jesus, everybody else might give in, Lord, but not me. Right? Like Peter. And, and then the 12-year-old girl shows up, and what do you do? Fold like a house of cards, right? Ah, I don't know him. I have no idea who that guy is. And so Jesus appears to Peter. What, what good news that is. And he appears to all the 12, because if you remember, who else fled from Jesus? Well, they all ran away. I mean, the women stayed. They did, guys, hear that. The women stayed. The guys all folded and fled. Okay, ruminate on that. That's a gospel lesson. So we see that Jesus does this, and we're told about it, you know, in the Gospels and Acts that he appeared to Peter in the 12. Paul here brings up something we don't know from another record in the New Testament, which is that Jesus appeared to more than 500 witnesses at one time. He says, look, a few of those have fallen asleep, but most of them are still around. They're still here. You can talk to them. Now, Paul wrote this letter in the early 50s AD, somewhere between 52 and 55 AD, is what it appears that he wrote this letter to Corinth. So, we are some 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says, Look, there's over 500 people still walking around that you can talk to, that met him. This isn't a blind leap in the dark. This isn't, well, you kind of have your thoughts and I have my thoughts. Paul's like, there's 500 people walking around that talked with him. Saying it didn't happen 
doesn't make any sense. Then notice he brings up, Jesus appeared to his brother James and other people who became apostles. So that, that was the sign of being an apostle in the New Testament. You had seen the resurrected Christ in his physical body. And he appeared to James, and I'll come back in a moment to why that's important. And then he appears to Paul last of all. And Paul says, I was like one abnormally born. He appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, you remember, which was about three years after the resurrection. So over these three years, Jesus appeared to between 500 and 600 people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' literal, physical, bodily resurrection from the dead, and they gave firm eyewitness testimony of this historical fact. So today, what's really popular is, you know, look, I have faith, which means I've turned my mind off. I'm not testing this. I'm not questioning. I'm not, that has nothing to do with biblical faith. That is not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, well, you just have to take this by faith. He says, look, there's 600 people walking around. Go ask one of them. So when these guys are telling you that the resurrection wasn't physical, they're wrong. It's not true. Now, that is the primary evidence that Paul gives, this solid historical evidence. But I want you to notice, you can also look and think, there was a drastic change in every one of these people's lives. And that gave corroboration to their testimony. Now, why do I say that? What happened to Peter and the 12 on the night Jesus was betrayed? They all folded and fled. All of them. Then after the resurrection, what are they like? I mean, they keep grabbing Peter and James and John, we read about in the book of Acts, and all of them, and they keep beating them, tying them up to a stake and whipping them and telling them, we are commanding you, stop talking about Jesus. And what is their response? The very people who just a few weeks before had fled at even the thought, now what do they do? We rejoice. Thank you. We are worthy to bear suffering for the name. What happened to every one of those apostles? They were all martyred. Every last one of them. Now here's another question for you. How many of them recanted their statement regarding the resurrection. See, it's interesting. It's 100% both ways. 100% folded prior to the resurrection. 100% refused to fold after the resurrection. That is pretty astounding. Not one. I remind you, I've been, you know, doing all this reading on World War II this year, just my little theme I've been off on. What do you think happened in the closing days of World War II? What did many of the Nazi leaders start doing? <laughs> they started folding. Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, one of the most wicked guys ever, started reaching out to the Western powers saying, maybe we can make a deal. Yeah, I was kind of a Nazi, but see, when they saw what was coming, they start folding. Not one of the disciples ever recanted. Because once they had seen the risen Christ, what can you do 
kill me? <laughs> I've seen what's on the other side. I know death has been conquered. Now, it mentions James. What was James's relationship with Jesus in the Gospels? Was he the head of Jesus' cheering crew? Now, let's have a little mercy on James. What if you grew up and your brother was God? That's a little tough, right? I mean, mom, who's your favorite? Well, I'm going to go with God, right? You have an argument. Mom busts in. Jesus did it. Yeah, I'm not thinking so. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a bad spot, right? So you can understand that James wasn't Jesus' biggest fan. Read the first verse in his letter. I am James, a slave of Jesus Christ. How do we go from literally trying to drag Jesus off in the gospel saying, I think he's lost his mind, to I am James, and my identity is slave of my brother? There's only one way to explain it. Jesus appeared. And what he did, everything changed for James and everyone else. And then Paul brings up himself, notice in verses 9 and 10. He says, I'm the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. How do we go from the man who is breathing out slaughter? He's standing there when Stephen dies. He is glad to do it. He is getting letters. He is on the road. He is killing Christians to the apostle who writes this letter. Because on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him. I mean, it's become a proverb in our culture, right? He had a road to Damascus experience. There is no way to understand the life of Paul apart from the fact that the risen, resurrected Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road, and he was like, who, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And by the way, you remember, what was his call? I'm going to show you how much you can suffer. And does Paul back down? Not to the end, because I've seen resurrection. I know it is true. Every one of these claimed to have personally seen the resurrected Jesus, and every one of them were changed from either fearful followers or opponents of Jesus into bold, faithful followers who considered themselves his slave. Nothing can explain that other than the resurrection. So friends, what does this mean for you and me? How do we apply this today? Number one, and we'll do this fairly briefly, I want to encourage to ask ourselves, am I listening to fake news of false gospels? Do not do that. We live in a time of information glut. There is so much stuff vying for your attention and mine trying to keep us busy. And the enemy can actually win if whether the stuff is true or not true or whatever else, if it's just less important and it consumes all of my time. 
so that I don't have time to even think about this. But on top of that, there are so many false gospels in our culture today. There is the gospel of expressive individualism. The salvation is found by burrowing down inside myself and finding my authentic self and expressing that so you all can applaud. I'll save you the trouble. When you burrow down inside yourself, you know what you're going to find? Sin. That's what you're going to find. I I know I've done it. (laughs) I know what's in here. It's sin. There's nothing for me to applaud. And there's nothing inside me for you to applaud. But that is one of the dominant messages of our entire culture right now. Life is about finding out who I am and digging down and doing this. You are the image of God. You are one who Jesus Christ has died for. If you are a believer, your identity is follower, slave of Jesus Christ. That's your identity. And there's no need to burrow down. And salvation is not found within. Salvation is found without. See, our culture is telling you your problem and my problem is the big bad world out here which is making us a mess. And if I can just get deep enough into myself, I will find salvation. Can I tell you that's the exact opposite of the truth? Your problem is you, and my problem is me, and salvation is an outside job. There is no burrowing down to save myself. I'm going to have to be saved from outside, and thanks be to God, it has been done by Jesus Christ. There is the gospel of my truth. I I hear this stuff so constantly, you know, well, that's your truth. What is your truth? Okay, brain cells die every time that that is uttered. There isn't my truth and your truth. There is truth. That's what there is. And there is falsehood and lie. And so salvation and truth are not different for each person. They're the same. There is only one gospel. There is only one way of salvation. There's the false gospel of sincerity. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Okay, but if you sincerely go step in the middle of Route 50 this afternoon and are certain that those trucks aren't going to run over you, you are sincerely going to find out you're wrong. It doesn't work that way. And no matter how sincere I am, if I am sincerely wrong, I'm sincerely wrong. You need a gospel that can actually save, that can actually pay for sin, that can actually conquer death. And there's, of course, the gospel of good works. You and I are basically good, right? I mean, this is, this is our, the message of our culture over and over and over again. We, we are born hardwired to believe this. I'm going to do more good than I'm going to do bad. I'm basically good. I'll be accepted if I do enough good things for others. That is simply not the case. First off, all the evil in the world makes that look foolish. And we have been through it time and time again. I mean, we believe the 20th century was the century when we had progressed far enough, no more problems. It was a great century, wasn't it? Other than the two world wars and the Holocaust and 
those little minor problems. And is it getting any better today? I mean, we're, we're going through the same things right now that we always have. We're not going to be saved by good works. And then there's gospel, let me be blunt, of a fake Christianity that says, well, Jesus wasn't really raised, but he lives in my heart. He lives in my memory. If that's all we've got, we're going to spend eternity in the grave. Because a not risen Jesus cannot save. But thanks be to God, we have real news. All those are fake news, and their news is bad news because they cannot save. But the gospel that we have, which is built upon the literal physical death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins, conquering death, that's real news. And that is news that is true, it is news that is good, and it is news that saves. So that leads to the the last thing to us, and then we come to the Lord's table. I want to urge every one of us to embrace the gospel today. Notice Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 a couple of times is urging the Corinthians regarding this. In verses 1 and 2, he says that, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. See, the gospel didn't just happen. It was proclaimed. It was preached by those who were sent to herald the good news. And he says, uh, I preach to you which you received. It was not only proclaimed, it was actually received by people. And he said not only that they had received it, on which you have taken your stand. It's not a mental uh, acceptance. It is an actual taking stand. I plant my feet. Here is where I stand. And Paul says, this God, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, it is in vain. So this gospel saves, but it only saves if we receive it, believe it, stand upon it, and don't let it go. Notice in verse 11, he comes back again and says, whether then it was I or they, speaking of all these witnesses to the resurrection, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. And so this is the summary of the gospel. So the final thing for us, the final question is, have I believed the gospel? Have I embraced the good news of salvation? And I don't take for granted because what Greg said here earlier, I mean, man, you know, I spent my teen years down in Georgia, right? Everybody in Georgia is a Southern Baptist. It doesn't matter. You know, you're, you're, you're born, slapped on the backside, given a Social Security number and asked which Baptist church do you want to be a member of. That's the way it works down there, Right? I was sitting in a Baptist church week after week after week because I could bum cigarettes from my buds and I had chased some girl into a Bible study and did not know the gospel. I was like Greg said, Mary, no idea who Jesus was or what he had done. And I remember at a, actually a David Wilkerson crusade when I was there and I finally for the first time the Holy Spirit revealed to me, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are not my follower. You are not 
my child. You are not in relationship with me. And then responding to that gospel and everything changed. It was death to life. Child of disobedience to one who lives under blessing. Child of wrath to child of blessing. Uh, A child of Satan to a child of God in a moment. Have you done that? I don't I don't take that. Don't pass by that question. Have you truly embraced the gospel? If you have not, I urge you with everything in me, do it today. There is nothing more important. Here's another piece of true news. You're going to die. And you are going to stand in front of a holy God. And when you do, what is going to be your hope? If it is anything other than Jesus Christ, you are lost. But thanks be to God, I can stand there. And if Satan himself were at my right hand and pointing out the sins you've seen and the ones you haven't seen. And pointing out the things I've thought and said and done. And pointing out things I wouldn't even remember that I had thought and said and done. There's one plea, which is that Jesus stands in front of me and says, he is mine. I paid for every one of those. He is clothed in my righteousness, and he will be mine forever. Is that your hope on Judgment Day? Because if it's anything else, brothers and sisters, I urge you, flee to him. And if you're a Christian, as we come down to the Lord's table, I want to urge you, we live by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. He is risen. And that changes the way we live every day, not just today. I mean, I love that we celebrate the resurrection today, but when is it really resurrection day? Every day. The good news, you can wake up tomorrow and say, he's still risen. He's not still in the tomb. He's not still on the cross, but he is risen. And we get to live in light of that. So brothers and sisters, we're going to come to the table. Friends, Christ has died. Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved, and you are part of God's covenant people. All who believe this are invited to this covenant table. You do not have to be a member of our congregation. If you are a believer, 
you are welcome to partake communion with us this morning. If you don't believe this, we urge you not to participate because this is a meal you're going to hear as we take it together. By taking of this, I am professing I do believe this. This is my belief and this is my hope. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, this bread is the symbol of the body of Jesus Christ. In taking it, we confess that Jesus took a body to live for us. That his body was broken to pay for our sins. His body was placed in the tomb and his body was raised on the third day for our justification. In his body he will return to earth and he will raise our bodies so that we will live with you as your people forever. Lord, we look forward to that day with great eager expectation because of the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ, take and eat. Jesus, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. In taking it, we profess that your blood has paid the penalty for our sins, that your blood has brought us to God, that your blood has secured our place as the covenant people of God forever. We receive it in faith, giving thanks for its cleansing power, and we look forward to the day when our faith will be sight. Brothers and sisters, the blood of Christ, take and drink. And let's stand together for our closing prayer and benediction. Holy Spirit, you spoke through the Apostle Paul and said, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Spirit of God, you are the spirit of sonship and adoption, so that we are no longer slaves to fear, but cry, Abba, Father, to our God. You testify to our spirits that we are the very children of God, that we are heirs of God, that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ himself. Through your ministry and work, O Spirit of the living God, we know that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so, Lord, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly 
for that day of our adoption as sons and daughters, the day when our, of the redemption of our bodies, because we too will be raised from the dead. We too will say, O oh death, where is your sting? And so through your ministry, may we wait patiently this week, Holy Spirit, knowing that every promise of God will be fulfilled. Death will be swallowed up and we will live forever beholding the face of our God, enjoying all the glories of the new heaven and the new earth. And we thank you for all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus, whose death, burial, and resurrection has secured it all for us. And God's people say, amen. Now may the eyes of your heart be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his inglorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for every one of us who believe. The power that is like the working of his mighty strength, when he, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Brothers and sisters, go forth filled with power and blessings of the resurrection and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.